Now, during last week's Bible study, we observed a conversation that happened between the Pharisees and Jesus. They had approached Jesus because they had been sent from Jerusalem to watch him and find fault with his ministry. And as they observed, he and his disciples, they, of course, because they were looking for fault, they found fault in him. They were inspecting the lamb almost as if they were inspecting the lamb before it would go into the temple and be sacrificed uh, for the sins like they would do in the temple. And so they're inspecting this lamb, and that's kind of the section that we're in in Mark. Uh, Jesus is being inspected as if he were some sort of uh, piece of meat, like the USDA would look at a piece of meat, uh, put it through various measures of scrutiny to make sure that it was exactly what was needed. And And for Jesus, he's going through scrutiny from people that aren't even qualified to look at him and scrutinize him. They're, they're, they're being, imagine this, this is what's really going on. God is being inspected by Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes, by man, really. We think of them as titles like the Pharisees, but in reality, they are imperfect men. And so to think that any of us could inspect the Lamb of God and find fault in him is kind of a, a pretty ridiculous thing in the first place. Uh, but these men have been instructed to go and find fault in his ministry so that they can discredit him amongst his disciples to kind of put to silence his following. So as they're doing that, they find out that, that you know, they, they see them and they go, okay, well, they're eating meat, they're eating, or excuse me, they're eating food with unwashed hands. But we talked about last week, it wasn't a, a hygienic washing that they were being accused of not doing. It's not like they were accused of going into the restaurant and not washing their hands before they ate. They were being accused of not following the traditions and the rituals of the Pharisees and the scribes. These weren't things that were actually in the the Word of God. They were not even in the law of God. They were just something taken to the nth degree so that when you would do it, you could be seen before men and look like you were holy. But it was an instruction on how to clean on the outside. We talked about last time how the, the Pharisees had no instruction or no wisdom on how to clean up the inside. They could only do what was outward. And so uh, because of that, they were not seen as cleansed before God. They were only seen as cleansed before men. And really, that's what they wanted to be. They wanted to look holy before other people. But Jesus instructed them at the end of uh, the passage from last time. He said, it's not what enters a person's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of the mouth. He said that uh, in chapter 7 last week. And I went back and read Matthew's account this week, and I should have done it last week because it had a lot more insight into the passage, but in Matthew chapter 15, verse 12, if you'll turn to the left one book and go to Matthew chapter 15, I read this last week and it kind of, it was interesting to me what the disciples said to Jesus right after he had said this to the Pharisees. In Matthew 15, verse 12, it says, then Jesus' disciples came and they said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? It's funny to me because the disciples are right there with him. And and Jesus says this to the Pharisees and the Pharisees are really observant. They're like, did you know that they were upset when you said that to them? (laughs) I think he knew. I think that's why he said it, you know. Uh, So then it goes on in verse 13. But he answered, and I, I presuppose that he wasn't surprised and said, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted will be uprooted. 
Let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind, and if the blind leads the blind, both will fall into a ditch. Then Peter answered and said to him, Explain this parable to us. So Jesus said to him, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and it's eliminated? But those things which, are, which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. So we talked about that. He was talking about ceremonial cleanliness. But what we learn from Jesus here is that sin begins within our wicked hearts. It does not come from catching spiritual cooties. I kind of mentioned that last week. Um, it doesn't mean that we, we come in contact with somebody that's outwardly dirty and therefore we become dirty spiritually. From birth, we're born with a sin nature that we inherited from our father in the flesh, Adam. And in order to cleanse us, Jesus starts by giving us a new heart. With a new heart that's set on worshiping him based on truth about ourselves. And when we fall short, we must repent. It's it's a lifestyle of repentance. So when we come to him the first time, we, we agree with him. We confess that we're full of sin and that we need a savior. If you don't know that you have sin, you're not going to look for someone to save you from your sin. But if you know that you're sinful, then you'll approach him humbly and you'll say, Lord, I agree. Your standard is correct. And I have fallen short of that. I need Jesus. And then at that point, Jesus's blood is applied to our account. It washes us of all unrighteousness. It cleanses us. And then there's still this process where we're cleansed daily. As we continue to sin or fall short, we're, maybe we're, instead of trying to miss the mark, now we're, we're, we're aiming for the mark and we're trying to hit it, but we still miss it. And just because we're trying to not sin doesn't mean that when we fall short, it's no longer sin. It just means that because we've sinned and we tried, we, we still need forgiveness. And so God still offers us that positionally. And so he um, gives us the blood of Jesus. to. So Jesus starts by giving us a new heart and with a new heart that's set on worshiping him based on truth about ourselves. And then when we fall short, we must repent and fully rely once again on the sufficiency of Jesus' blood for our salvation. The problem is that man is incurably religious. If left to our own ways, we'll try to find some other way to fix things. Uh, we know that we've fallen short, and God's given us this conscience that tells us that we, we haven't measured up. And so oftentimes, rather than trying to go God's way, we try to go on our own way. We try to earn forgiveness. We try to relink with God. And there's two kinds of religions in, in the entire world. They, they all boil down to these two different types. Um, number one, human achievement. And number two, divine accomplishment. That's the next slide. Thank you. Religion just means to relink. Two types of religions in the world are, number one, human achievement, and number two, divine accomplishment. So if we have those two different types, if we look at them, human achievement is really just us trying to accomplish something that we can't accomplish. As far as human achievement is concerned, we try to... Number one, sweep our sin under the rug to hide it, act like it never happened. I didn't sin. And then we don't have a problem, right? But we have a problem because there's still guilt there. Or 
we try to do more good than we have done bad in our in our life to tip the scale. We have this scale of justice and we go, well, I've done this much bad, so I'll add some good to it. I'll do some good deeds. But that doesn't work either. We still have the guilt that we have to deal with. And so we do this in order to try to twist God's arm into letting us into heaven. Or we try to do some things that probably some of us in here, most of us in here do. Uh, pray enough, read our Bible enough, or even go to church enough to make the guilty feeling go away. But this does not work because we're saved by grace through faith, according to Ephesians chapter 2. We can't earn it. It's not a work that we can do to earn God's favor because it's His grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. It's unearned. That's what saves us. So because of that, the only way to be truly relinked with God is by divine accomplishment. Everything that we try to do just muddies it up. It's like a room full of dust. If we, you ever take a, one of those brooms that sweeps and you sweep the, the dust, you probably get the majority of it. You get the dirt. You get the big chunks of potato chips that so-and-so left on the floor. But you don't get all the dust. It's still dirty. You just can't see it anymore. But when you sweep the floor, what happens? Well, you got to deal with all the dust that went in the air. And then the fan blew around. And then the air conditioning vent blew. And then it ends up on all the other surfaces. So what we need is we need forgiveness. We need the Lord to do that work. And when He does it, He gives us the Holy Spirit. And because of that, it's like taking water and spraying it on the dust on the floor. And then when you spray water on dust on the floor, what happens is when you go to sweep it up, it all kind of piles up neat. It doesn't get in the air. It doesn't make more of a mess. That's what man's accomplishment does. When we try to accomplish salvation on our own, we make a mess. But when we let God do it, His righteousness is the only thing that's sufficient to save us. <clears throat> so anyway, that, that's kind of last week. But what I wanted to look at is as we go to this next passage this week, um, in verse 24, the phrase is said, from there he arose. And because of that, I haven't pulled up a, a map in a while. And so on this slide, you'll see Israel, and you'll see the whole kingdom, and you'll see the Jordan River, kind of the line that goes down on the, towards the right-hand side from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. Okay, if you'll hit the next one. Jesus has just been in the region of Capernaum, and that's on the uh, north, excuse me, on the upper left side of the Sea of Galilee, and uh, Capernaum is right there, and that's kind of, we talked about, that's the headquarters where Jesus, he always kind of seems to come back to. That's where uh, Peter lived, and that's where he healed Peter's mother-in-law, so uh, there's kind of like a home base for him there. But where he's heading in today's passage is he's heading up to that northern region called Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is a Gentile region. This is an area that's not primarily Jewish. It's a, a Gentile area. Now, if you don't have any Jewish lineage, more than likely you're a Gentile. That was just the word that they used for that. But uh, I wanted to give you a map to show you that because from Capernaum to the region of Tyre and Sidon, that whole area there, is about 50 miles. So <laughs> I mistakenly read this passage at first, and I, I thought... Well, let me read it first, and then I'll explain to you what I mistakenly read it as. Matthew cha or Mark chapter 7, verse 24. It says, From there he arose, and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Well, I want to stop there, because it seems like I, I assumed 
that since Jesus, many times, he travels to an area to kind of get some rest. But in this case, if he was looking for rest, he traveled 50 miles to get there. So I really don't think that's why he went there. So as Jesus leaves his headquarters in Capernaum, sorry, let me read that over, over again. Verse 24 through 26. From there he arose and he went to the region Tyre of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it. But he could not be hidden for a, a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him. And she came and she fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast out, cast the demon out of her daughter. So as Jesus leaves his headquarters at Capernaum to travel someplace new, he heads to an area that's primarily Gentile, a people that he had up until this point never gone to. He had never left the area where it was all the Jews. And so for the first time he's leaving, those who were near the spiritual capital of Israel and he's going to a region where there's a bunch of people that that haven't had a heritage a godly heritage I think about this because uh, Jesus came to me and I wasn't in a family that was raised in church I wasn't in an area that I didn't have a bunch of family members that were going to invite me to church I had neighbors that took me but the reality is is that many people and I guess we'd probably be an area that would be considered more of a Jerusalem Israel type. I don't know about you guys, but I don't know too many people that have never heard the name of Jesus. And the reality is, is because we come become so familiar with Jesus and, and church and kind of churchies or Christianese, the, the language, we, we start to think that because we were raised in an area that, that had churches everywhere, that, that we know the Lord Jesus. And many people will talk about God, but the reality is, is that most people, even ones that call themselves Christians, don't really have a biblical idea of who God is. And so that's why we study through the scriptures, because um, six years ago, I didn't know who Jesus was. And so today, the reality is, is that we have all things that we need to know about Jesus that he wanted to tell us in scripture. And we can study them and we can even test the things that we hear other people say and we can get to know him personally. But that being said, Jesus left what would be considered maybe his comfort zone, and he, he went to an area that did not know the Old Testament, did not have the scriptures. They were people that were rebellious against God for years and years and years. As a matter of fact, this morning in Bible study I was listening, and, and we were talking about the fact that Abraham even, before he came to know Yahweh, the God of the Bible, his dad was an idol maker. He, he was in a, in a country where they worshipped idols. They didn't worship the God of the Bible. And oftentimes we think, well, the Jewish people have, the, have God because they had the Old Testament. And the reality is, before they were ever people of God, they, they, they were idol worshippers. They were just like you and I before we knew Jesus. They didn't have any reason to follow the, the commandments of God because they didn't believe in Him. But the cool thing about being in darkness is that when the light shines... It illuminates the reality and the spiritual condition. So today we're going we're gonna to look at that. This is the land that he had traveled to. Excuse me. This land that he had traveled to was Old Testament Canaan in the Old Testament. 
It was the area that the Jews were supposed to go in and possess. They went in and they possessed it, a good portion of the land that God promised from when they entered, according to the book of Joshua. But they never conquered the entire portion that God had said he would give to them. There were still areas that were inhabited by Gentiles, and the Gentiles were just just any people who were not descendants of Jacob, or what we call them, Israel. So this Gentile woman has come up to Jesus and asked him to cast a demon out of her daughter, and Jesus' response to her is quite interesting. And if it's not in context, it seems like he's kind of being rude. Verse 27 says, But Jesus said to her, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and to throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and she said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Now the Gentiles were thought of by the Jewish people as less than people. They treated them like they were the scum of the earth. The Jews looked at the fact that God chose to reveal himself to their forefather, Abraham, and they looked at it because they thought that they were chosen because they were better than all the other nations. And the reality is is that God just chooses who he decides to choose. He doesn't choose based on merit. He chose uh, Abraham because Abraham just actually responded. He listened. And so the ironic thing is that when God revealed himself to Abraham, according to the book of Genesis, like I was saying, he was of an idol-worshiping nation. He was, his dad was an idol maker. He was a Gentile just like the ones that the Jews were now treating like they were the scum of the earth. However, Jesus does not take the same tone here with the Gentile woman that a Jewish male would in those days. Jesus did not mean to call her a dog, as we might think. Actually, without proper context, it sounds extremely harsh to call someone a dog. We would never call anybody a dog in our culture, right? We'd probably get slapped. But Jesus was calling her what the Jews referred to Gentiles as, which was Gentile dogs. Um, echoing what was in the minds of his disciples. However, the word that he uses for dog is a different word. In our translation, it's a very subtle thing, but in the Greek, it would be obvious. Uh, So we're going to get a little Greek lesson. Dog here, actually, uh, the word that, uh, there's two different types of dog. Uh, One, I don't know if this is the exact pronunciation, but one uses the word uh, kuon, which just is the kind of dog that roamed the streets, scavenging and attacking people. Now, these are, this is not a dog you would want to be called, right? And then the second one was Kunarion, which is a pet, the little puppy that you keep at home. Or some of us have big puppies, right? We have big dogs, and they drool everywhere. Um, but the idea is, is these aren't scavenger potlicker dogs. I've heard people talk about potlickers before, and, and the dog will be running around, and anytime there's food thrown out, they're knocking over trash cans. And if you like see them in an alley somewhere at night and it's dark, you, you're afraid that they're going to come up and bite you. They don't, you know. So they're not the dogs that you'd want to be called. So the word that the Jewish people would use for the Syrophoenician people at the time was kuon, dogs, calling them scavengers that were unfit for the kingdom of God. They looked at them like scum. However, Jesus here uses the word kunarion, referring to them as little puppies around the table. In just a word, we see God's true heart for those who were outside the nation of Israel. His heart for the people that weren't inside the nation of Israel were really for the same that they were for the Jewish people. Uh, 
So notice that the woman's reaction to Jesus calling her a dog was not one of being upset. And I think I would have been upset, but she understood what he was saying. She wasn't disgusted at Jesus' remark, but her response was one of humility and faith. She understood her place as a Gentile and the place of the Jewish people according to God's plan. She was humble and she was submitted. So I wanted to just notice that her faith in Jesus was one based on knowledge of the truth of God. This Gentile woman had no reason to believe that Jesus would answer her prayer, but she still approached him in faith. So, number one, she approaches Jesus humbly. She throws, him, she throws herself down at his feet, according to verse 27. Or 26, I guess. She kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So, and then the second thing, she calls him the son of David. Now, we, if we've read the Bible enough times, it'd be very easy, especially if you read Matthew's account, you see that the term son of David... Then you see the phrase that says, so it might be fulfilled. This was written to a primarily Jewish audience. And, and Mark's account doesn't say son of David. But according to Matthew chapter 15, verse 22, she calls him son of David. Now as a Gentile woman, just like Rahab in the Old Testament, she was fearing God more than the Jewish people were. She had an idea of not just that there was this man that could do miracles, but she saw him as the Old Testament fulfillment of the prophecies that foretold that the Messiah would come. And when he came, it's interesting to me that the Jewish nation, for the most part, rejected him completely. And on the other side, there's the Gentile woman who's far off, not anywhere close to where Jesus came to in Nazareth and in uh, this, near the Galilee region. She's over there in Tyre and Sidon, and she's looking for the Messiah to come. How do I know that? Because when he gets there, she shows up and she finds him, even though he's in a house. She was looking for Jesus. She had a desperate need, and so she came to him. I don't know about you guys, but that's convicting. Because I don't know that the trials in my life caused me to search for Jesus as much as they should. And the reality is, is that every time that there's, an oper- there's a trial in our lives, the place that we should be, and hopefully we pray that we'll get there, is that when that trial comes, our first uh, response or our reaction is not to, to panic, but it's, it, it's to go, okay, Lord, I see this trial, and I'm afraid, and I don't know what to do. What, do you, what are you getting ready to do? Because when we do that, we're looking for Jesus to show up in the midst of the trial, not just asking him to get rid of the trial. Number three, she understood the place of the Jewish people in God's plan. She understood that the Jews were God's chosen people, whether they acted like it or not, and was thankful that God used them to send the Messiah through their lineage. Number four, she understood her place as a Gentile. She understood that as a Gentile, she was not entitled to anything, but also knew that even the scraps of blessing from the God of Israel would be more than enough to save and to keep her and her daughter. She begged him. Number five, she understood God's mercy. She understood that though she was not of God's chosen people, that those who approach him with a humble and a contrite heart would not be denied by him. Now, who knows where this faith came from? Maybe it was somebody that walked by faith years before that had come through their region, maybe even during one of the battles of the Old Testament. It doesn't say here. It just says that she approached him with, 
And she begged of him earnestly. So verse 29 says, Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way. The demon has gone out of your daughter. Verse 30. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Her persistence, her humility, and her faith won her request. I love what 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 16, verse 9 has to say about the Lord. Just reading that passage made me think about it. It says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. I find that to be interesting, and I'll give you the context, because apart from the context, that may not make a whole bunch of sense. It doesn't make it any less true. It's a beautiful truth about God, but the situation that comes from is... uh, in 2 Chronicles 16, the prophet Hanani had told King Asa, who was the king of Judah, the southern two tribes of Israel at the time, because it was divided, that because he had trusted in an alliance with the pagan nation of Syria for protection instead of trusting in God of, in the God of Israel, from then on there would be wars among King Asa's kingdom, and as a result, no rest. However, if King Asa had done what this verse says and placed his trust in God in the God of Israel for protection he would have been trusting in God's divine accomplishment that we talked about earlier his ability to protect them from their enemies was way beyond what any man could do to protect them they were supposed to be a people that were set set apart that trusted in God and because of that they would be different than all other nations all the other nations would do what King Asa did in this particular stance They would call on other nations and they'd pay them off essentially to use them and use their their, uh, kind of like vigilantes or what's the gunmen for hire. Basically, they they would hire these other nations to use their armies to protect themselves. And it makes sense, right? If another nation has a, a bigger army than we do, why wouldn't we call on them to do this? Well, in this case, in Israel's case, because they had God. God God is far better than chariots and horses. And David even prayed that. He said, Lord, I won't won't trust in anything else. I won't trust in chariots. I won't trust in horses. I will trust in the Lord my God. And that's what we've been called to, to trust in His ways, not ours. So in this situation, the Jews had trusted in their system in other rituals from the world like we looked at last week for so long that they were choosing not to trust in the God of Israel And so when Jesus, the Messiah, shows up, they did not listen to him because they did not recognize him. They thought they had it covered, and therefore they were not going to God for help. Though he had promised that he would be their God. So as Jesus runs to and fro looking for those whose hearts are loyal to him, kind of inserted that, but basically that's what he's doing. He showed up in Israel, he found no one that was faithful or loyal, and so he went and he got himself a Gentile bride. Now, He went out there for a time, and I believe that he went out there to show that he didn't come to just die for the sins of Israel. He came to die for the sins of the world. And so, as Jesus runs to and fro looking for someone whose heart's loyal to him, he finds what the world would see as an insignificant Gentile woman, and after testing to see if she's willing to approach humbly, He grants her request and he shows himself strong on behalf of her whose heart is loyal to him. 
he cast the demon out of the woman's daughter, according to verse 29 through 30, at her request. She asked and she received. An interesting note about this particular miracle is that Jesus healed this Gentile woman's daughter from a distance. The daughter was not brought to Jesus. It was just the mom came to Jesus. So God is the God over distance. Distance doesn't matter. Another instance where this type of faith is seen is found in Matthew chapter 8. We won't go there for now. Where Jesus heals the centurion's son without ever going to where the boy was. Jesus met up with this man and this man came up to him and he said, I, I, I just need you to heal my son. And, and he said, okay, well, I'll come. And he said, no, you don't even need to come to my house. I know that you are under authority because I'm also a man under authority. And so because he recognized that Jesus had the authority of God, he trusted that he, if he would say something, it'd be done. And, and actually, it's funny, it's one of the few times that Jesus marvels at faith, and it's over a man who was not even of his people. He was a Gentile man as well. This kind of faith made Jesus marvel because he had not seen this kind of faith even inside all the nation of Israel, and they had every reason to believe. Remember the miracles that God's done for them. He brought them across the Red Sea as if by dry land. He took them miraculously out of Egypt using all the plagues. He took them even when they entered in, into Israel, as we looked at that map, when they crossed the Jordan, they crossed on dry land. And God had done many more wonders than this, but those are some of the obvious ones. And yet when Jesus shows up, they have no faith. So this would be especially good news to those who would read Mark's gospel, because remember, his primary audience is people like us. They're Gentiles. So for anyone who would think that Jesus only came to save the Jews, this is concrete evidence that God sent his son to all the world, not just the Jewish people. John 3 shows that Jesus did not come for only one group or one or another, but that the world might be saved. For God so loved the world, John 3:16. He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever, not just one group or the other, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. So Jesus erased the distance between the Gentiles and the father by his finished work on the cross. Jesus did this because the nation of Israel, they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. They were blessed by God. This is what God told Abraham back in Genesis. He said, I will bless you, and in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. They were blessed to be a blessing, just like you and I. We've been blessed to be a blessing. We've been saved ourselves. We've had the blood of Jesus Christ poured out on our lives, forgiven, free from bondage, so that we can be sent to others to express to them that same good news. Oftentimes what we do is we say, Lord, thank you. And then we just hold it to ourselves. And the Lord, his desire is that we would be sent. That was the last thing that he said before he took off. He said, go ye therefore into all nations, preaching in the name of the Son, baptizing and making disciples. And so the passage that made, this made me think of was in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, go ahead and turn there with me. Ephesians 2 chapter 11, or verse 11. 
God is a sending God. And when God sends His Son, He doesn't just send Him to do a small work. He, he wants to reach the whole world. And to me, that's unfathomable. I've flown to a few different places, but every time I fly somewhere, I look out the window and I look at towns and I look how small we are. We think that we're this big people, but the reality is, is that there are six billion plus people on the earth and I don't even know what a million people looks like. So figure six billion and you think about how God knows every single person. He knows the number of hairs on their heads and he wants to reach them all. And, and the way that he did it was such an insignificant way compared to the way that we would do it. We'd put up something on the internet and we would put billboards in every street corner and we would make sure that there's a neon sign so people would really see it. And God, what he does is he sends his son. He sends one person to affect the entire world. But this is what he did when he went to this woman. And this is his heart for, for us. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 says, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, which is just means you're not Jewish, by what is called the circumcision, Jewish, made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our state before Jesus Christ. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ, for he himself is our peace. He gives us peace between us and God. Our sin has separated us. That was our rebellion. It wasn't just because we didn't know. We rebelled against God. He himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh, the enmity or the war, that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby, therefore putting to death the enmity or the war. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near, for through him we both have access by one spirit to God the Father. Now therefore, and this is the, the beautiful thing, this is the, the finished work of Christ. Therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but we are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. His purposes are so much better. What the Israelites were supposed to do was be a blessing to all the nations. When they were not, did that stop him? No. Jesus came in the form of a man, and he reached out and he touched. He has redeemed us all by his blood, and despite those who would try to hold back and keep his love for themselves, Jesus goes the distance to make sure that we all can be partakers of the salvation that he purchased for us by his blood. We all have entrance into the Holy of Holies, and because of that, we all call him Father and worship him because of his grace that was shed upon us. My question for you is, are you like this woman? Is your heart loyal to Jesus 
even when it seems like you are the only one in your workplace or your family? And do you continue to look for, to him, for him to show up in the midst of your trials? I've got to be honest with you, I, I don't. I had to repent of that just today. In this woman's trial, she was looking for Jesus to show up, and when he did, she was ready to seek him for help in the middle of the trial. Are you spending your time preparing to trust him? Are you ready for what might come your way? I don't care what your trial is, Jesus will be the only one who can relate and see you through it. Learn to call upon his name in the little things, and when their big ones come, you'll be ready to trust him with that trial as well. But I just love looking at this passage and seeing the, the faith of this woman that, you know, really in my mind didn't have any reason to have any faith. No one had ever come to him, her. She hadn't probably even had, you know, she probably didn't even have a Bible of her own from the Old Testament. But when Jesus showed up in her town, she needed him and she knew that and she came to him humbly. Tonight we're going to take communion. And uh, I wanted to read a passage, but first of all, we're going to 